Hi, and welcome to the second episode of the East German Fashion History Podcast. For today, we will be discussing 50s fashion GDR style. Since this is a decade's worth of history, the podcast will be divided into two parts, and the second half will come next Tuesday. Also, be sure to check out Got a Hot Minute on Fridays. Um, it's a bonus episode where I'll review my recommended weekend read. This week, I'll discuss Fashion East by Georgia Bartlett. I'll also be providing key sources and images to accompany this episode on the blog tomorrow, and you'll see that in the episode description. Now, as with many Western and Eastern European countries affected by World War II, the 50s really was an era for fashion houses and nations alike to redefine their presence and articulate their capabilities for creative, indulgent, and glamorous fashion, but also to swiftly move forward from what once was. And for East Germany, the fashion industry begins to take shape and come into its own with its own social, socialist-driven imperatives. I'd like to revisit a quote from last week that really epitomizes the importance of having a strong fashion industry by Walter Kahl, the assistant director of the German Fashion Institute in 1958. He asserted that fashion not only influenced the, quote, mood of our population, It also goes hand in hand with the world's perception of the GDR, saying, quote, one will speak disrespectfully about us. One will say they can't even dress themselves properly and yet want to construct socialism because people are inclined to measure the value of one or the other society, starting out with the things in their daily lives, with the external world of appearances. For much of Western Europe, as well as for North and South America, the 50s really was the golden age of fashion with collections and silhouettes that defined the era, lifting up a traumatized post-war society into a fanciful mirage of Hollywood glamor, like Elizabeth Taylor, Marilyn Monroe. You also had Christian Dior's new look and series of collections such as the Corolle line, the A.H and Z-Line and his tulip skirt, amongst others. And all of this required bountiful volumes of tulle, silk, brocades, lames, and all the fabrics that only a few years ago would have been denied due to fabric restrictions. Now the ideal body for the woman was who was to wear this was a pronounced bust, a wasp waist, and narrow hips. To easily comprehend the key events that transformed East German fashion history, I'm going to discuss it chronologically from 1950 to 1955, alongside trends and silhouettes from Western fashion. For some essential dates, I've used the CR fashion book as well as the book Schick im Osten, Mode in der DDR um, by Dr. Ute Schäffler. She's a German studies professor and writer and has written a series of books, including one on Zibilla, the fashion magazine we discussed and we'll talk about lightly today, and as well as Zulianka Oravi, Das Ultimative DDR-Kochbuch, 
1949 bis 1989. So that translates to Zolyanka or what? The Ultimate GDR Cookbook, 1949 to 1989. And just a quick sidebar here. Um, Zolyanka is my favorite soup of all time, probably my favorite dish of all time. And it was commonly eaten in Russia, Ukraine, and other Eastern Bloc states. It consisted of pickles, olives, cabbage, with either mushrooms, fish, or meat and sausages. And if you're in the New York City area and want to try it, I would recommend going to the Russian Banya in the financial district. It's glorious. So back to fashion. I found Schick im Osten, Mode in der DDR, was really a great source for this and other episodes. It especially had a great fashion timeline for the 50s. And I think we need to be mindful and conscious of the fact that these were the moments in fashion that mattered to East Germans, not necessarily Western Europe or America. So before we delve into the timeline, I'd also like to preface with the fact that while East Germany had access to both West German publications, they also had their own, and those included Die Bekleidung, or clothing, and that was bi-monthly, starting in the 50s, DDR Review, and illustrated monthly from the 1950s to the 70s, Frau von Heute, Woman of Today, that was big in the 40s as well as the 50s. Neues Deutschland, a New German, and that was daily from the 50s and also the 60s. Praktische Mode, or practical fashion, it was usually just called Pramo, and that was from the 50s and 60s. And finally, Sibylle, um, and that was from 1956 to 1989. So let's start with 1950. Now, by this time, uh, functionaries and officials had warned that the East German industry needed to work harder at matching consumers' wishes, or they'd be stuck with sur surpluses. The GDR had already lost millions of citizens, um, millions as citizens had bought West Berlin clothes, and they were well aware that the FRG, or the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany, was providing high-quality, fashionable, and affordable clothes. At this time, in, the 19, in 1950, um, we had the, the arrival of nylon tights available in Germany. And because they were so expensive, a lot of people would knit their own, which increased the need for repair shops. This uh, decade was also a huge moment for synthetics, as we discussed last week. The GDR's pr production of synthetic fibers fell way behind the West because of the increasingly difficult East German exports of cap to capitalist and socialist countries. Now, regardless of this, in, in 1950, they were producing nylon stockings and also used this as an opportunity for a nationalist branding, renaming it from Perlon to Dederon, which sounds very similar to DDR uh, or the Deutsche Demokratische Republik. It is also important to note that by 1950, 40% of the GDR's output was clothing factories, was from clothing factories. In the fall of 1950, 
Dior introduced tunic coats, wrapped fabric, and suit skirts with an asymmetrical leaning or silhouette. And following that, you had a Berliner Modeblatt, which was a West German magazine East Germans had access to, reports on the different viewpoints of wearing a wide or narrow skirt based on what the housewife or based on what a housewife, seamstress, a young girl, a salesperson, and a modern consumer had to say. And the article features an illustration of a model with a wide jacket and tight skirt and hat similar to uh, Dior's fall 1950 collection. So the housewife apparently wanted something tight, but not too tight as she had to be able to walk in it. A seamstress um, believed wide skirts are beautiful, but the tight skirt will inevitably be a favorite of my clients. Young girl mentioned she loved the movement of a wide skirt. A salesperson that both are pretty, but if overdone or too busy, which seems to be becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And then a modern consumer that if I could have something made for me, then it's going to be a tight skirt, which requires less fabric. So you have this dialogue of wide, wide versus narrow skirt and all within the frame of, you know, 1950, where the DDR knows, the GDR knows that they're East German customers and citizens are reading this and they have a fashion industry that's slowly falling behind and they really have to catch up. In 1952, the Sozialistische Einheitspartei Deutschland, that was the ruling party we talked about last week, announced plans of an accelerated constructed socialism, which was accompanied with a set of new increased norms of output and decreased wages, which did not turn out well and would have an effect on the following year. This same year, in 52, the Institut für Bekleidungskultur was founded by Elie Schmidt, and she also ran the magazine Die Bekleidung. The role of the IBK was to design and transfer new dress proposals to the industry and organize a mass production of clothing. While the IBK had showed haute couture styles and samples at socialist dress contests, a lot of these wouldn't be mass produced. They were also in charge of creating a fashion line of the GDR. And they would also create and distribute fashion patterns to make at home and industry guidelines for trends. Ultimately, the IBK had to master the balancing act between creating fashion presentations and the forces of a planned economy, but also meeting consumer consumer demands, especially of providing for and reacting to the fickleness of West German fashion, which influenced an East German state. One Berliner Tageblatt discussed the change of hat silhouettes in the year and had said that at first, in the beginning of the year, hats were smaller, small enough to see the the hairstyle, yet still had to have the same effect, which is to complete the look. But by winter, 1952-1953, it discussed the importance of the hat and the hairstyle and the hairstyle in an updo in the back um, to set the hat in place. And whether asymmetrical or straight, hats had, you know, were just there to have a nice touch. So it's important that the GDR 
um, is, you know, following these trends and unaware that these are trends are happening, even when it has to do with the, the changing silhouette of a hat. So fickleness really, the fickleness of fashion really plays, plays a problem in the future to a planned economy. And it's also important to note that fashion of the GDR follows, you know, follows international designers which lag behind and, you know, having to operate under such an economy. One writer had even said that, quote, if Dior favors bows, the working woman will also wear bows on her blouse, but one year later. 1953. Dior introduces a slight off-the-shoulder cream gown, which curves into the waist and is sculpted to pronounce the hips. This is called the tulip skirt. In this year, he also begins to raise hemlines. Meanwhile, in East Germany, by February, Schmidt had been appointed to the State Commission for Trade and Supply. She tried to fight for better quality, which was an ever-growing complaint at the, which she complained at the Politburo. In June of this year, the new course, which was a result of the growing pressure from the Soviet Union to cut funding towards heavy, towards heavy industries and focus it on consumer goods, there, was, there had been a major uprising which unfolded, and that really had a long-term effect on the state relations in terms of the workplace and consumer goods. There was a sudden increase in clothing prices and a 100% markup on those dederon or nylon stockings we had discussed. Ellie Schmidt is dis- dismissed from her position as head of state commission for trade and supply after having to fight for better quality and continues at the but still continues at the IBK. This was also the year that the, quote, Red Dior, we discussed from last week, Heinz Bormann, opened his fashion salon in Schönebeck Salzmann. It is run by a 21-year-old Helena Petsch. She's the youngest tailor in Germany, right out of a Munich fashion school, and she really becomes the key figure in running the house of Bormann. Petch creates modern, extravagant, and practical fashion which enlighten but also fit the rubric of the atelier. Now, Bormann is known for really having the nicest materials that are really how to, hard to come by um, from Plauener Lace. Plauen is a city in East Germany, historically celebrated, known for their lace making traditions to Chinese brocades, um, and he really seems to, to have luck when it comes to finding materials, even though his employees had coyly remarked that he had a hard time differentiating them. After June of 1953, the uprising of this state um, wanted to, after the June 1953 uprising, the state really wanted to calm its population, the population, and they wanted to do this with consumer goods, which is where Boamann came into play as he produced a fashion show in Schönbeck State Stadtpark. But it wasn't until late of October 1953 that local officials stressed that, quote, the population's demand for the best quality is justified. For this reason, industry and trade have the duty to work in all earnestness on the wishes of the population. 
And it's in this same year that Berlin lays its ambitious plans to take back its pre-war state of being the center of fashion. So East Berlin, from Hausvogelteilplatz to Donhofplatz to the Spittelmarkt, um, these are all major areas. This was going to be the new um, Berliner Modezentrum, or fashion center, and it was to really to fulfill its nationalistic purpose. Here you had the Fashion House of Berlin, you had the IBK, a uh, Kulturhaus, which was for workers of the industry in a department store even. It was to be, quote, exactly as Prague fashion has a name in Czechoslovakia and Europe, we must succeed in making Berliner fashion a concept for all of Germany. Berlin must set the tone for German fashion. In 1954, Chanel reopens her stores, which have a major success in the States. Dior shows his H-line, which is composed of sheath fabric at the chest with the neckline in the shape of an H. Back in East Germany, you had a contest um, in which East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, and the Soviet Union competed with 50 outfits in categories that included... One was work uniforms for heavy and light industries, two for peasant clothes, three sport uniforms for housewives' dresses, five evening wear, six men's suits and coats, and seven children's wear. And I just like to say that the housewives' dresses, a lot of these um, dresses were also to be used to wear at work. And while the if there is a quote that mentions that while the housewife is really important in, in continuing with their five-year plan, um, she also, a lot of women did have the chance and were, were required to, to work. So a lot of these dresses, these more couture-like dresses or 50s-like dresses you would see in Western Europe, you would also see um, women working in offices throughout Eastern Germany. The same year, Heinz Bormann um, gets assigned a huge task from a huge contract from the Soviet Union to, to, to make 50,000 pinstripe suits. So just the massive quantities of that is really impressive and a huge thing to take on. And in that same year, he's showing his collection in the West. And in 1955, we have a whole different element and a lot of other themes I'm going to discuss. So clothing was down in terms of the GDR's output. It was only accounted for 25%. And in the same year, Die Bekleidung reports on work clothes for female farmers, which was designed by the IBK. And the title of this article was Praktisch und doch ansprechend das Arbeitskleid unser Bäuern which translates to practical and appealing uniforms for our farmers. And these were female farmers. And it's an image that shows three women, one in a floral apron layered under, layered under a, a dress, under, under a dress, and two in coveralls with, and all of them have their hands on their hips. Now, this is a great segue into Proletkult, or the cult of proletarianism. Proletkult idolized timeless proletarian favoring 
practical and solid coveralls, um, dirndls worn by women, and a sturdy body frame. And they were usually seen in manual labor with their hand on their hips, which is considered a working class posture. This really played into the East German national identity and promoting this idea that it was the German identity or Germanness was grounded in the idea of working and work. Leisure time was a rarity, and in this instance, women would be seen wearing homemade dirndls. Now, in the history of 20th, 20th century German fashion, this wasn't the first time that dirndls and this folk dress had been had a lot of large nationalist underpinnings. This happened to be a major theme of women's fashion during the late 30s and into World War II, and primarily in Nazi Germany. Proletkult didn't have a wide appeal as socially conservative. Bourgeois aspirations really gained momentum in the 1950s. And while Western capitalist fashion remained present, it was seen these kinds of fashion that East Germans had adopted from the West were seen as clothing culture, but with less ephemerality as the fickle fashions of Western capitalism. In 1955, Ellie Schmidt asked the Ministry of Light Industry to create a new magazine. And this is where Sibylla was born. And it's the opening letter it's from the opening letter of this magazine that we find out what Zibilla really means. Zibilla comes from Zibbles, Sibyls, which were Roman prophetesses. Symbolically, this was really supposed to usher in a new era for East German fashion. Zibilla would show fashion from Prague, Warsaw, Florence, Vienna, Moscow, New York, Beijing, London, and Paris. This was also a platform for designers of the IBK to showcase their work. And that's all the time we have for today. Um, like I said, for next week, I'll be going into 90, everything from 1955 to 1960, 1961. And that's really when we're going to get into the, the dreamy world or, and also the honesty that... Um, the realities that Zibilla, the magazine, had had shown and had portrayed. And I also, for a special treat, when I was in Berlin about 12 years ago, I went to, they have a really amazing costume library in Berlin, and I went and photocopied one of the issues of Zibilla, and it's the first issue, which came out in August of 1956. And we'll go into those elements and what the messaging, what the repercussions of that were, and also what that actual fashion report of Paris sounded like. So thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to seeing you virtually or via podcast on Friday and uh, on Friday. And also make sure to check out the blog. I'll post the link to that with additional images for everything that I've discussed today, tomorrow. Thank you so much.